0: Hello, and welcome to Way2Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast. In this special audiobook edition, you'll be hearing the Patrick MacDonald Collection of Highland Vocal Airs, Country Dances, or Reels from 1784. Skip to 10 minutes in for just the audiobook. All right, I have been talking for a couple months now about wanting to release a audiobook episode, which is just going to be kind of presented that way as an audiobook. As I got closer to doing that, I realized that that's maybe not, um, that there's, I should do more. I should do some more scaffolding. Uh, you know, I'm training as a historian and have taught a number of classes, and one thing I have realized with my students is that. Uh, Things that I like things I take for granted, like a lot of my students don't even know what a primary source is if I use language like that. Um, So I thought I'd just mention it here. Generally, when we talk about primary sources kind of broadly, it just means anything created in the past. Um, Oftentimes, we'll look at things that are kind of ephemera, things that aren't intended to be passed down or read by other people, those things are really revealing. Obviously, this is a little bit different because we're reading from a preface and an article that's part of a book. So it was always intended to have an audience. Um, but it's still really important when looking at primary sources and historical sources to kind of be critical about it. Um, Just because this is something that was written down and published by Patrick MacDonald, not written by him, but published by Patrick MacDonald, that doesn't mean that it's a given that everything that is stated in there is true, Um, but it does mean that everything that's in there can teach us something, like we can learn a lot from it. Um, There's really two very different readings that are going to be part of this. The first one, the preface, generally speaking, I think is quite good. Uh, it's written by Walter Young, and it makes some really interesting uh, discussions of Joseph MacDonald, kind of the famous uh, bagpipe book writer, uh, Joseph MacDonald's Complete Theory, I think is what it's called. Um, kind of the first written Peebrock that we know of existing, although it didn't get published until quite a bit later. Um, that's Patrick's brother. Uh, So there's some discussion of Joseph, there's discussion of Patrick's methods in collecting these uh, tunes and just a little bit of musing about how they should be performed and that sort of thing. And those are really good. I think you can take a lot of that, pretty, just take it as as written. Be still critical of it, but you can kind of accept it as as worthy material. The second thing we're going to listen to uh, is this essay, Of the Influence of Poetry and Music Upon the Highlanders. So this piece is a little bit more sketchy um, and really uh, implore you to be pretty critical uh, when you're listening to this. So this thing was written by John Ramsay of Octatire, who's sort of a renowned letter writer, just wrote tons and tons of letters, has a book on curling and Scottish Highland history, um, and also like a book on Byron, uh, Lord Byron. So interesting cat. And you really see kind of the culture of the day expressed in this essay of this idea that um, kind of educated gentlemen can know anything and it's, and like it's sort of the enlightenment that's that 18th century mindset kind of viewing everything as civilizations, uh, in orders, you know, like in the Linnaean order from bar- barbarism or savagery all the way to, you know, peak civilization, which just happens to be the people that came up with Linnaean order. Um, and you know, British gentlemen, they just happen to be the pinnacle of civilization and everything else is just on the way to that. Like it's some pretty, um, like racist isn't the right word in this case necessarily. Like my training as a historian of Native American history, I wind up spending a lot of time looking at the stuff and being really critical of the sources that are describing indigenous people. And it's it's interesting. In John Ramsey's essay here, it sounds like it's very similar to the sort of um, paternalistic nonsense that people wrote about indigenous people as well. Um, so yeah. While I think it's still interesting, there's some really fun things to, to hear in there, uh, and there's certainly some factual information. There's some other stuff that's just like, what? What are you saying? Uh, suggesting that since after the Vikings left, nobody in the Highlands changed or did anything. Like, they were just a stagnant people until recently. It's just weird, weird weird assertions. But uh, still interesting. The other thing that I really like about it is John Ramsey's account spends a lot of time talking about Ossian and kind of Ossian poetry uh and so this is published right in 1784 it's right when the debates about Ossian's poems are kind of getting started and in general they're really popular and in the highlands or in Scotland anyway and you know other in England too there's you know Oscar Malvina is a you know a big opera that's going to show up in Covent Garden Theater uh within a couple years of 1784 I'm not quite sure when that started but uh it's by the end of the 18th century anyway Um, so you can see sort of the popular culture, people starting to be romantic and and think about Highlanders and kind of ancient druids and that sort of thing in the discussion, but it's still useful. Just important to be, you know, keep your mind critical about it. Um, I think what I'm going to do is have a discussion on the Patreon account, uh, at at the very least. If a bunch of people message me that they want to participate in it, um, Maybe I'll do it someplace else, but or, or give you an invite if you want to have like a book club about this reading. Um, I guess maybe next week. I, I've already recorded uh, a discussion that I'll post as the next episode uh, as soon as I get all the the pieces in a row. But it's a, a discussion that's sort of loosely based on all of us reading uh, Patrick McDonald's collection. Um, and it's between myself and Matt Seattle and Pete Stewart and Barry Shears and Keith Sanger. And it's it was really a fun conversation. So uh, I'm sure that'll be helpful. But I didn't get through half the things I wanted to talk to, uh, about. Um, so there's still lots to... Yeah, there's lots of things to discuss. So I'll, I'll try to host some kind of a... Book club where we can just meet and chat about this source if anybody's interested in doing that uh, drop me a line at way 2 gmail at gmail.com or post on the facebook or something um, and depending on how much interest i can make it more interesting but my hope is to have that zoom session uh after the um after the episode of matt and keith and pete and barry and i talking so anyway What else do we have to say about this collection? So one of the things that's so fun for me about looking through 18th century texts uh, is the actual object of the thing, you know, the different uh, printing technologies uh, and just the the look and feel of it. Um, I love that stuff. I take for granted that it's different than what we see now. And so my (laughs) kind of poor suffering reader here, uh, Anthony Smith, Anthony is also a Boron player, which is how I first met him on social media. Uh, So he kindly volunteered some uh, Boron accompaniment for our intro for these um, archive episodes. Um, But yeah... Anthony lives in Galicia now, um, but has you know lived in Edinburgh and around the UK, and he's got a, a really pleasant accent to listen to, and just a really nice voice, and when I saw that he was doing work as a voice recorder, or a, a voiceover actor, I, was, I immediately thought, oh, that's what I should do for these, so anyway, thanks to Anthony. But the way I tortured Anthony with this, I gave him the 18th century printed version, like the Google Book account, which you can look at yourself. And it's all just a mess. It's really jumbled together and, and kind of hard to read. And it also is 18th century printing style. And the the one way that really affects this reading is in the 18th century printing, oftentimes they would use a letter um, that, like the way that the S's would look depending on the number of S's in a word or placement, um, there is a key that they used that really looks to uh, kind of the untrained eye like an F. And so if you're looking at a text and you see this F in the middle of it, you just say it, especially if there's other words you don't recognize, you don't, your brain, you know, it's pretty easy to think that, Oh, why are they talking about perif here or rife as opposed to Paris and rise So you'll hear a couple of those little errors, but I think it's not going to be too distracting. The one place it really shows up a lot is in that essay when um, there's a lot of discussion not of Ossian, but of Afian, which is sort of a fun, fun oops there. I might come and check in at the end, just briefly, and thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy.
1: Preface. As this is the largest collection of the vocal music of the Highlands of Scotland that has ever been offered to the public, some account of it, and of the steps that have been pursued in compiling it, may be necessary. Almost the whole of the North Highlanders, which formed the first and largest division of the following work, were collected by the late Mr. Joseph MacDonald, the publisher's brother whose musical genius and attainments, as well as the enthusiastic attachment which he had to the peculiar music of his native country, are still remembered by many. He was born in Strathnaver, the most northerly district of Scotland, and passed the first years of his life under the tuition of his father, who was a minister in that part of the country. This good man, in his hours of relaxation, used frequently to apply himself to music. And having experienced the power which he derived from thence of agreeably and innocently unbending his mind, in the solitude of a remote situation, he wished to communicate the same advantage to his children, and along with his other more important instructions, he taught all of them the first principles and initiated them in the practice of that pleasing art. In these exercises, Joseph made a very quick progress. At the age of fifteen he played on the violin with an easy flow in execution, and in that expressive manner which distinguishes real genius and feeling. He had also made considerable progress in playing on the bagpipe. About that time he was sent to the south of Scotland for the purpose of prosecuting his studies, and was fixed for a few years at the school of Haddington. During that time, music, his favorite pursuit, was not neglected. To it and to painting he devoted the most of his leisure hours. He afterwards resided for a short time in Edinburgh. He there had an opportunity of being frequently in company with Signor Pasquale and the other masters of that period, and thereby of extending his musical knowledge and improving his taste. Although few men felt the charms of the Italian music more sensibly than he did, and though he frequently practised it, his passion for that of his native mountains never abandoned him. It presented itself to his imagination with all those associations which often give to music its greatest power over the mind. While he played or sung those simple, artless melodies, his eyes frequently streamed with tears. Upon his return to Strathnaver, he had abundant opportunities of indulging that passion. He then applied himself seriously to make a collection of that music, and to write down the pieces that he knew, or had occasion to hear, and which probably had never before appeared in musical characters. During upwards of two years which he spent in that country, he continued to enlarge his collection by the addition of such pieces as he heard in different parts of it. He also wrote out some of the best poems that were sung to them and made a collection of the different kinds of bagpipe music. From these engaging objects, his attention was for some time diverted by a proposal that was made of him going to the East Indies, of which he accepted. Before his departure to that country which was in the year 1760, he wrote out a copy of a number of the vocal airs which he had collected and left it with a sister as a token of affection. All his other collections and papers relating to highland music and poetry he carried along with him. By his letters it appears that he employed the leisure of a prosperous voyage, and also whatever time he could spare after his arrival in India, in arranging and digesting these materials with the view of publication, and in drawing up such historical accounts and such other explanations with regard to them as he judged necessary to make them more generally understood and relished. In a letter which he wrote to his father he thus expresses himself, There is nothing brings to my mind a more natural and soothing joy than the playing and singing our sweet highland lunies, jorams, etc., when by myself, for alas, I have none capable of sharing the pleasure with me. They paint afresh the many innocent and sweet scenes of my rural and purer life, far beyond description. What would I give now, far from the theatre of those delightful scenes, for one night of my old beloved society, to sing those favourite, simple, primitive airs along with me? It would bring me back to the golden age anew. Oh, that I had been at more pains to gather those admirable remains of our ancient highland music before I left my native country! It would have augmented my collection of highland music and poetry which I have formed a system of, in my voyage to India, and proposed to send soon home, dedicated to Sir James MacDonald or some such chieftain of rank and figure in the highlands, in order that those sweet, noble, and expressive sentiments of nature may not be allowed to sink and die away. And to show that our poor remote corner, even without the advantages of learning and cultivation, abounded in works of taste and genius. I have no view of interest in the matter, though it is hard to say what favourable reception they meet with, for while the world lasts I hope there will be some persons of taste in it. If Sir James MacDonald is not prejudiced and rendered cold to the Highlands by his corrupt English education, I hope he will duly prize it. If he is, there is no help for it. I shall next think of addressing it to Mr. MacDonald of Glengarry, Sir Alexander Mackenzie of Cool, or to a society of our highland gentlemen of best figure and taste, to preserve as a monument of antiquity, or publish as they see proper. But if our highland gentry degenerate, who knows, but a spirit for encouraging such a work may arise in the Low Country. If it meets with no other encouragement it will be a first-rate entertainment to myself. Since I could do no more, I set the rights to work in a town on the coast of Persia, where we put in at, and got the black fellows, some of whom are very ingenious, to make me two or three whistles, fed in mahra, which have answered so well as to enable me to preserve all my pipe music. My good friend Mr. M. at London has been so kind as to send me a fine Highland bagpipe, and a suit of highland clothes, which I hear have arrived at a town on the coast of Malabar, with which I expect yet to make a conquest of an Indian princess. He did not live, however, to accomplish his plan. A malignant fever cut him off in the prime of life before he had been much more than a 12 in the country. His premature death will be considered by the lovers of highland music as a public misfortune, as from the collections which he had made from his abilities and zeal there was reason to expect from him a large and correct publication. The airs which he had left with his sister were transcribed by the publisher for the amusement of himself and his friends, and were kept by him as a mournful memorial of a beloved brother. He was frequently solicited to publish them, and assured that they would be favourably received by all who had a taste for simple and expressive melody or who wished to preserve the monuments of antiquity. By these solicitations and assurances, he was reluctantly prevailed upon to deliver that collection to the public. Although he was abundantly conscious that it was far from being so complete, or in such an accurate and perfect form as it would have been if his brother had lived to execute the plans which he had in view. When he had formed that resolution it occurred, that as his brother's collection consisted chiefly of the heirs that have been preserved and that are sung in the counties of Ross and Sutherland, and as a very great number of different airs are sung in the other districts of the highlands, it would be necessary that some of these should be obtained and inserted. The task of collecting these the publisher was obliged to take upon himself. His residence for a considerable number of years in the county of Argyle gave him frequent opportunities of hearing the airs that are most common in that part of the country. These he attempted to write down in musical notes. He made several journeys into Perthshire and other parts of the highlands for the purpose of collecting the airs that are sung in those districts and are not so generally known in Argyllshire. And from the singing and the friendly communications of some respectable gentlemen and ladies, natives of the Western Isles, he has been enabled to enrich the collection with a number of beautiful airs that are in some degree peculiar to those countries. The event has justified the opinion, which his friends had entertained, of the encouragement that would be afforded to such a work. Soon after this collection had been announced by him to the public, it was honoured with such an extensive and liberal subscription as far exceeded his most sanguine expectations, and justly demands his warmest acknowledgments. The publisher thinks it incumbent upon him in this place to give some further account of the materials of which the following collection consists, and of the steps that have been taken to bring them into the form in which they now appear. His brother's collection has been given almost entire, and forms the spirit and the largest division of this work, under the title of North Highland Airs. His notation has been faithfully adhered to, except in a few of the slow, plaintive tunes. These are sung by the natives in a wild, artless, and irregular manner. Chiefly occupied with the sentiment and expression of the music, they dwell upon the long and pathetic notes, while they hurry over the inferior and connecting notes in such a manner as to render it exceedingly difficult for a hearer to trace the measure of them. They themselves, while singing them, seem to have little or no impression of measure. It would appear that Joseph, in his notation of these airs, In place of reducing them to regular time, had attempted as nearly as he could to copy and express the wild, irregular manner in which they are sung, and without regarding the equality of the bars, had written the notes according to the proportions of time that came nearest to those which were used in singing. It was judged improper to lay them before the public in that form. They could not indeed have been understood, but by those who had an opportunity of hearing them sung or played by the natives. The publisher has therefore ventured to write out these pieces in equal bars. At the same time, he has endeavoured to express as nearly as he could, consistently with such measure, the style and manner in which they are sung. This, he presumes, he was in some degree qualified to do, as he had often heard his brother perform them, and as some of them have been familiar to him from his early years. This, however, is the only change that he has made in the notation of these airs. The whole series of notes in his brother's copy has been strictly followed. The airs here alluded to are these which stand in the collection at numbers one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty-eight, thirty-one, thirty-two. 59, 61, 70, 71, 72, and 73. It is hoped that the liberty, if it may be called such, that has been taken with these airs stands in no need of apology. In the present state of musical notation, little more than what may be called the elements or groundwork of an air can be conveyed by it. It is as impossible by any characters yet known. To mark the nice peculiarities of manner and expression with which it may be performed by particular persons or in particular countries as it is to mark by letters the minute shades of a provincial pronunciation it is better therefore not to attempt this at all than by using new characters or uncommon modes of notation to be in danger of rendering the piece unintelligible to a stranger or what is almost equally bad to oblige him to bestow attention and study, in order to trace and discover its meaning. Some degree of irregularity and freedom from the constraint of measure is admissible, and perhaps necessary, in performing slow, tender, and pathetic airs. The peculiar charm of this music, the effect which it has upon the hearer, when performed by one who feels what he sings, is perhaps owing in part to this very circumstance. A strict observance of measure is incompatible with strong emotion or passion. A man who is greatly agitated or deeply affected does not move in equal or uniform steps. An equable and measured movement is generally considered as the mark of composure and tranquillity. No person of feeling or taste recites an affecting piece of poetry with a strict attention to the measure. A general outline of measure is observed, but this is variously shaded and filled up in different parts. It has now become the practice of the most polished and improved musicians in execution a pathetic air to use freedom with the measure for the sake of expression and effect. It is professedly an object of attention and discipline with them, occasionally to disguise the measure. This is returning to nature it is the genuine dictate of emotion and sentiment. It needs not, therefore, be matter of surprise that an untutored Highlander, whose feelings are strong, and whose impression of measures probably weak, should depart still further from regular time. All music, however, is now written in just measure. This is necessary in order to point out the accented and emphatical notes, without attending to which it is impossible to enter into the meaning of the piece. This is the standard or line from which deviations within a certain limit may occasionally be made, but which must always be kept in view if it is wished that the performance should be accurate or pleasing. The airs above mentioned and others of similar structure are valuable as probably being the most genuine remains of the ancient harp music of the Highlands. This was once the favourite music in the Highlands of Scotland, as it has long continued to be in Ireland. The fate, however, which it has experienced in the two countries, has been very different. In Ireland, the harpers, the original composers and the chief depositaires of that music, have till lately been uniformly cherished and supported by the nobility and gentry. They endeavoured to outdo one another in plain airs that were most esteemed with correctness and with their proper expression. Such of them as were men of abilities, Attempted to adorn them with graces and variations, or to produce what were called good sets of them. These were communicated to their successors, and by them transmitted with additions. By these means the pieces were preserved, and so long as they continued in the hands of the native harpers, we may suppose that they were gradually improved, as whatever graces and variations they added to them were consistent with, and tending to heighten and display the genuine spirit and expression of the music. The taste for that style of performance seems now, however, to be declining. The native harpers are not much encouraged. A number of their airs have come into the hands of foreign musicians who have attempted to fashion them according to the model of the modern music, and these new sets are considered in the country as capital improvements. The lady in the deaf art, as played by an old harper, and as played according to the sets now in fashion, can hardly be known to be the same tune. It is now abundantly regular in its structure, but its native character and expression, its wilderness and melancholy are gone. The variations are such as might have been composed at this day in Italy or Germany. In the highlands of Scotland again, the harp has long ceased to be the favourite instrument, and for upwards of a century has been seldom heard. The encouragement of the people has been transferred to the bagpipe, an instrument more congenial to the martial spirit of the country. In consequence of this, many of the pieces that had been originally composed and had been chiefly performed or accompanied by the harpers are irrevocably lost, and those which have been preserved by tradition may naturally be supposed to have been gradually degenerating. To render these airs therefore more regular, especially in their measure, is in fact bringing them nearer to their original form. A considerable number of the airs contained in this first division are what the country people call lunics and are sung when a number of persons are assembled, either at work or for recreation. They are generally short, their measure is regular and the cadences are distinctly marked. Many of them are chorus songs. Particular parts of the tune are allotted to the principal singer who expresses the significant words. The other parts are sung in chorus by the whole company present. These pieces being simple and airy, are easily remembered and have probably been accurately preserved. The airs contained in the other divisions of this work have been collected by the publisher, as already mentioned. In writing them out he has endeavoured to follow as closely as he could the manner in which they are sung, and he has given them to the public in the same form in which he received them. Perhaps he has not always given the best sets of them, as he may not have had the good fortune to hear those sets. A perfect uniformity in the manner of performing vocal airs is not to be expected more especially if they have never been written out in musical characters the execution of an air will be different according to the musical powers and attainments or the taste and sensibility of the performer musicians well know that a few variations in the melody of particular passages do by no means destroy the identity of a piece of music hence better or worse editions or sets of the same air will be obtained from different persons, or in different parts of the country. When the publisher had frequent opportunities of hearing an air, he chose that set of it which appeared to him the best, and the most genuine. When he had not such opportunities, he satisfied himself with writing the notes which he heard. The measure was, for the most part, sufficiently obvious. When this was not the case, he adopted that which gave the notes most nearly in the proportions, that were expressed by the singer or which appeared to be best adapted to the measure of the words. He never thought his copy of an air accurate, until upon playing it from his notes the singer acknowledged that it was as nearly as he could judge the very tune which he had sung. He did not conceive that he was authorised to alter or improve the pieces according to his own ideas. He leaves that to others. A few appoggiaturas or grace notes are occasionally added in order to give some idea of the style and manner in which the airs are performed. Of these, however, the publisher has been sparing for the reasons hinted above. They are often taken from the preceding note. This is perhaps suggested by nature to enable the voice to pass with more ease and certainty to that which follows. The notes which are used as appoggiaturas are not only the next in degree above or below the principal node but are frequently 2 3 or more degrees distant from it these last are for the most part below the principal node and ascend to it they are often however above it and descend they are often necessary to give it its true expression and effect particularly those that are at the interval of a lesser third Such grace notes may occasionally be introduced in the following airs in many places where they are not marked, more especially when they can be taken from the preceding note. In singing, these grace notes are for the most part executed rapidly so that, though their effect is felt, they are but obscurely perceived. It is difficult to express them well upon an instrument. It may be proper to observe in this place that in some of the airs notes are taken into the measure which perhaps might have been more properly written as grace notes. This was done with a view to give a clearer idea of their proportions. It will, however, occasion little embarrassment, as every person who is moderately skilled in music can distinguish the notes, which form what may be called the substantial part of an air, from mere passing notes or notes of decoration. It may also be necessary to remark before concluding this subject that the vocal airs in the following collection are to be performed rather slow. Even those which are marked brisk are seldom to be executed so quick as the modern Allegro songs of the same measure. The country dances may be played as quick as the performer chooses. The vocal airs are divided into four classes, Viz, North Highland airs, Perthshire airs, Argyleshire airs, and Western Isle airs, By this division, little more is to be understood than that the different airs were obtained in those parts of the country under which they are arranged, or from persons who had resided and had learned them in those districts. Many airs in this collection are pretty generally known throughout the Highlands. Every district, however, has a number of airs that are in some degree peculiar to it, being more generally known there than they are in the other parts. They had probably been composed in that district. The scene of the poems that are sung to them is frequently laid in it. They relate to its particular manners and customs, to its history and inhabitants. These airs, therefore, may be properly enough considered as the peculiar music of that district. Even the small, remote island of St Kilda has its songs, some of which the publisher has had the good fortune to procure. An attentive observer may be able to mark certain differences in style and character in the peculiar music of those districts. This might open an extensive field of speculation. The publisher, however, forbears to enter upon it. He leaves it to abler musicians. Except in this distribution of the airs into the classes above mentioned, no particular plan of arrangement has been followed. It might have been wished that they should have succeeded one another according to the periods in which they were composed. These, however, the publisher had no direct means of ascertaining. He has distinguished a few that were known to be ancient, and leaves it to speculative musicians from their character and structure to determine the comparative antiquity of the others. There is undoubtedly good reason to refer many of them, besides those which are marked, to a remote period. The first class, as it is the most numerous, so it probably contains the greatest proportion of ancient heirs, The pieces in that class are sometimes exhibited in groups, those being brought together which are in the same key, the same measure, or which in other respects resemble one another. It was originally intended by the publisher that the pieces in this collection should have appeared without any harmonical accompaniment. These airs often differ considerably in their form and structure from the music to which parts are commonly set. The progressions of the fundamental bass do not always observe the same laws. It seemed, therefore, scarcely possible to adapt an accompaniment to them which would not, in many cases, violate the established rules of counterpoint, and so give disgust to the regular musician. To have made such alterations in the melody as might enable them to admit of a regular accompaniment was inconsistent with that fidelity which the publisher was bound to maintain. As their fundamental harmonies are often ambiguous, and even the keys are sometimes but obscurely marked or imperfectly established, the proper accompaniment is not so clearly indicated as it commonly is in the regular music of the moderns. Different men will adopt different systems with regard to it, and a bass which may satisfy one person will be considered as false or improper by another. There is a certain model according to which basses are generally constructed and no bass will be tolerated that does not in some degree conform to it. There was reason, however, to apprehend that basses constructed after this model might not suit a kind of music which differed in several respects from that which originally suggested it, and that, in place of heightening and displaying its native spirit and expression, they might rather have a tendency to impair and counteract them. It seemed, therefore, the safest course to publish the simple melody and leave it to masters or others who might wish to perform particular airs to frame an accompaniment agreeably to their own taste and fancy. The publisher, however, was frequently solicited by many respectable subscribers to his work to depart from that resolution. It was alleged that the airs would not be received or attended to if they were published in that naked form, and it was suggested that many persons might wish to play them upon the harpsichord who had not musical knowledge sufficient to enable them to compose a bass, or had not the opportunity of a master to assist them. He was desirous of complying with the wishes, and fulfilling the expectations of the subscribers as far as lay in his power. A middle course has therefore been followed. Basses, chiefly for the pianoforte, are added to such airs as were most regular in their structure, or seemed most capable of bearing an accompaniment. The rest are printed without basses, The publisher gratefully acknowledges the assistance he has received from his friends in this part of the work to which his own skill and practice in music were scarcely adequate. The airs which differ most in their structure from the modern music and to which it is most difficult to adapt a regular bass are those which appear to be in the minor mode. It has often been matter of surprise to musical theorists that so great a proportion of the ancient airs of every country should be in this mode, which they are accustomed to conceive as artificial, And unnatural. Such persons do not perhaps consider that in those ancient airs the fundamental of the flat series is never constituted as a keynote by means of its sharp seventh as it invariably is in the modern music, and therefore that properly speaking many of them are not in the minor mode. As this sharp seventh in music of the flat series stands in a distant relation to the original keynote from whence that series is derived, the introduction of it may be considered as, in some degree, artificial and unnatural. It probably was never thought of until keyed instruments had been invented and some progress had been made in the science of counterpoint. A person who has not been conversant with such music cannot easily be reconciled to it or be made to sing it in tune. That the sixth of the scale, however, should frequently occur in connection with the keynote and its third is exceedingly natural and would probably take place in the very first attempts which were made to combine musical tones. The sixth is naturally a soft complaining note, the key note is grave and solemn, and the third is also tender and pathetic. These, therefore, will in the earliest times be the prevailing notes in plaintive music, and these are the notes which give the chord of less a third. The fifth being more bold and commanding will be occasionally introduced to give relief to the other notes, and to heighten their effect by means of the contrast. Accordingly, these notes comprehend almost the whole compass of many ancient airs. The other degrees of the scale, where they occur, are used chiefly as passing or connecting notes, and may possibly have been the improvements of a later period. Of these intermediate degrees, the second, as it connects the key note and third, will be most frequently introduced. And as in its character and effect it resembles the fifth, it will sometimes appear as a principal note. Many airs of this form will be found in the following collection, in particular the airs numbers twelve, thirteen, fifty-three, sixty-nine, seventy-ninety-three, one hundred and thirty-five may be mentioned. These airs appear to be partly, at least, in the minor mode. The effect which they have upon the hearer is similar to what is produced by that mode and yet the fundamental of that mode is never regularly established as a keynote. The fifth being always natural, cannot properly be considered as a note in the leading chord of a regular cadence upon the sixth, but must commonly be referred to the keynote as its fundamental. The seventh and fourth of the original scale do not at all appear in them. These were probably the degrees of latest invention. They are seldom found in very ancient music that is more purely in the major mode. Passages by semitones which give such delight and are so anxiously sought after in modern music are scarcely known in ancient music. They were probably first introduced in music of the flat series. When men had been accustomed to hear the sixth, in connection with the keynote and third, they would come in time to consider it occasionally as a governing fundamental or keynote. The seventh would then be introduced as a passing note betwixt it, and the original keynote, now the lesser third, and a fourth of the original scale would be introduced as its sixth, it bearing the same relation to the original keynote or lesser third of the flat series, that the sixth bears to the third of the original sharp series, viz. the relation of perfect fourth. In the beginning of the air number 11, the seventh occurs between the keynote and the sixth, which in that part of the tune has the appearance of being the governing fundamental. When that air comes to be more decidedly in the major mode, that note is no longer found in number fourteen. the fourth is introduced in the airs number sixteenth and seventeenth. both these degrees of the scale are introduced, and accordingly the flat series seems to be more clearly established in these airs than it is in the others that have been mentioned. If a base is to be set to the airs of the simple form above described that may proceed by anything like regular fundamental progressions, it must in general. Be constructed in the major mode. The sixth must be considered as third in the chord of the fourth and must have the fourth for its bass note rather than its eighth. Of this, an instance is given in the air number 135. This, however, is liable to objections. A degree of the scale is introduced into the bass which does not occur in the melody, and the impression of the flat series is counteracted. When the 6th happens to be the concluded note, as in number 13, the close upon the 4th becomes exceedingly awkward. The other airs that have been mentioned, in which the minor mode seems to be more clearly established, may admit of a bass in that mode. Here, however, the chord of the 5th, which must occur in every regular cadence upon the key, never fails to suggest to one who has been accustomed to modern music the idea of the sharp 7th of that mode. That note, however, is never expressed in genuine ancient music. On the contrary, the flat seventh often proceeds to close. What has been chiefly aimed at in setting bases to some of the following airs is to give specimens of the different methods in which an accompaniment may be adapted to such music. It is left to performers either to take them as they are or to fashion them according to their own taste or system. Some of those airs will probably produce their happiest effect when sung or played in a simple expressive manner, without accompaniment, or at most, with a few octaves sounded to the empathical notes, such as we may suppose were struck upon the harp in former times. Any regular accompaniment that can be sent to them will perhaps weaken in some degree their native expression by giving them a modern artificial appearance. It is like superadding the ornaments of the Grecian architecture to the square castle of an old baron. To others of them, the best accompaniment is perhaps the bagpipe bass or the continual repetition of the keynote. A few of these are marked, the keynote being written at the beginning of them. Lastly, in some of the airs, especially those of the flat series, it may be proper to use the sharp in place of the natural seventh and to alter few notes when they are to be accompanied by a bass. This may sometimes be done without materially changing the character or expression of the melody and the music will thus be made to sound better to a modern ear. In the air numbered 18, the sharp seventh is once or twice introduced to favour the bass. The first part of the air number 62 is printed twice. The first is the original set, in the other the sharp seventh is used and a few notes are changed. By this means it is made to admit a fuller and more regular bass. Most of the North Highland country dances were written from the plane of a bagpipe performer from that district. The others were taken down from the singing or playing of the natives. As it is probable that few of them are known in the south of Scotland, it was thought that they might prove acceptable to the lovers of that pleasing and sprightly music. It was at first intended that these dance tunes should have concluded the work. Many respectable subscribers, however, having expressed a wish, that some of the pieces that are played upon the large or true Highland bagpipe should be inserted. The publisher was desirous of gratifying them as far as was consistent with his plan. With this view, he made a journey into the country of Lochaber, where he knew that there was an eminent performer upon that instrument, retained in the family of a gentleman with whom he was nearly collected. And from his plane, he wrote out four favorite pieces which he has annexed to the work. Whoever has attempted to execute such a task and has had experience of the difficulty of it will readily excuse any imperfections that may be found in the notation of those pieces. The publisher flatters himself that if such imperfections be discovered, they will not be thought very material unless perhaps in the quick variations. In performing these upon the bagpipe it is usual to introduce certain graces and flourishes which are peculiar to that instrument and to that species of music and which can hardly be expressed in notes or executed at least with the same effect upon another instrument. The publisher, however, has made as near an approach as he could to the notes that were expressed by the performer. These pieces are printed mostly as specimens of that kind of music. They are all considered as excellent in their kind, and the publisher has reason to believe that the sets which he has obtained of them are genuine a complete collection of that music would make a large work. Perhaps such a collection, which may be received with confidence as genuine, is not to be hoped for till a performer of genius and ability shall appear, who being well instructed in the notation of music, may be able to write from his own performances, to explain the graces and modes of execution that are peculiar to that instrument and music, and to invent and apply proper characters to express them. If such a person shall ever be found, it is not doubted that the Highland Society of London, who have discovered such a laudable zeal for the preservation of that music, will give him suitable encouragement. A sense of gratitude for the very liberal encouragement with which this work has been honoured has induced the publisher not only to extend it considerably beyond the limits of his original proposals, but also to annex to it a dissertation upon Highland poetry and music, which has been generously communicated to him by an ingenious friend, To whom nothing that tends to throw light upon the ancient manners and customs of nations is indifferent. He has also published a list of subscribers, amongst whom he is proud to reckon many of the most distinguished persons, both for their rank and taste, in Scotland and in England. As to the merit of the pieces in the following collection, the publisher will say nothing. They are now before the public and must speak for themselves. He will readily acknowledge that the merit of some of them, Considered as musical compositions, cannot be rated high. These have been inserted upon different accounts. Some of them are ancient, others are popular in the Highlands as being the airs to which favourite compositions are sung. Besides, it was intended that the collection should be large, and that, so far as it went, it should serve the purpose of a record. A national air that does not in any degree excite the attention of a stranger will often, in consequence of certain habits and associations, produce a great effect upon the mind of a native. The genuine tones of feeling and distress, however, are addressed to the heart and speak a language equally intelligible to men of all nations. If it shall be acknowledged that some heirs in this collection, though perhaps short, abrupt and imperfect, do indeed speak this language, the publisher will congratulate himself upon having rescued them from oblivion, and contributed to increase the stock of original, natural, and expressive melodies. He has, by no means, exhausted the vocal music of the highlands. A great number of airs are sung in the different districts of that country, which he has not had access to obtain, or has not had room to insert. These may exercise the industry of future collectors, if encouragement to such an undertaking shall be again afforded. He cannot conclude this preface without returning his most grateful acknowledgments to all who have honoured this collection with their patronage, and to those whose kind assistance he has experienced in the different departments of his work. End of Preface Of the influence of poetry and music upon the Highlanders Querulas praetentat police cordas adque haec percusis subjungit carmina nervis Ovid Met The poems of Ophian are a singular phenomenon in the literary world. They prove, what lettered pride is unwilling to believe, that the bards of a people reputed barbarous possessed at an early period talents and taste which would do honour to any nation. Their authenticity, it is true, has been roughly questioned by an eminent critic and traveller who seems to regard the translator and his country with a liberality not unworthy of him that said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth. It cannot, however, be disputed that the remote Highlanders at this day are as fond of poetry and music as the Arcadian shepherds of old. In giving some account of this remnant of primeval manners, we shall confine ourselves to compositions that are confessedly modern in comparison of the age assigned to Ophion. Till lately such compositions were seldom committed to writing but were handed down by tradition, from one generation to another. That works of taste and genius should be preserved without the assistance of letters may appear somewhat incredible to us who derive our knowledge chiefly from books. But among an illiterate, sequestered people living at their ease, the memory is amazingly tenacious, especially when the matter to be remembered coincides with the ruling passion. A number of these poems are accounted beautiful, though inferior in general, to the specimen published of the works of Ossian, Love and satire, petty war, and the pleasures of the chase, always were the favourite themes of the highland bards. Though by no means strangers to the gay or the ludicrous, yet a vein of melancholy pervaded their best compositions. Nor is this surprising. In every age and country the muses love to dwell upon sad and tragical events, in preference to those that are more propitious, but less strongly marked, and the bards of an illiterate people are most likely to excel in subjects of that cast. When the heart is overcharged with sorrows of its own, or melted with commiseration for the woes of others, it spurns every frantic ornament and speaks the language of nature with classical simplicity and force. This poetry accords with the taste and feelings of men in the rudder as well as in the more polished states of society. Although the wealth of the highlands has at all times consisted of cattle, its poets have forborne those rapturous encomiums of the shepherd state which occur in the pastorals of antiquity and which charmed us, for much, in our cheerful morn of youth. Rural scenes are sometimes introduced and sweetly painted, yet were one to form a judgment concerning the employment of the Highlanders, even from performances unquestionably modern, he would conclude them to be hunters rather than shepherds. Their popular poetry was, however, admirably suited to a country where, within the memory of man, every person was trained to arms, and where husbandry and even pasturage were followed no farther than necessity required. Thus, not long ago, sheep and goats were regarded as beneath the consideration of a man, being reputed the property of the wife. The lowest fellow, too, would have thought himself dishonoured forever by assisting at a sheep-shearing. Allusions, therefore, to the tendency of flocks and to the hopes and fears of the shepherd-life were not likely to be relished by those whom the bards wished most to please. Even the St. Kildians have their poetry and music, but in a style peculiar to themselves. Their insignificance and remote situation secure them from invasion, their poverty and primitive equality from angry feuds. No wonder then that their poetry should breathe a very different spirit from that of the other highlanders, Whose language they speak and some of whose features they retain the mules of St Kilda are as simple and ill-informed as its inhabitants at the conclusion of the fishing season when the winter store of this little commonwealth is faithfully deposited in a house called Tichibarra its whole members resort thither as being the most spacious room in their dominions and hold a solemn assembly there they sing with gratitude and joy one of their best real airs to words importing what more would we have? There is store of Cuddies and Faith, of Perich and Alachan, laid up for us in Tichabara. Then follows an enumeration of the other kinds of fishes that are hung up around them, to which they point in the course of their singing and dancing. It will not, perhaps, be unacceptable here to give a translation of a St. Kilda elegy, the effusion of a young woman, who had lost her husband by a fall from the rocks when employed in catching fowls, The friend who favoured me with it found it in the Isle of Skye, among people on whose veracity he could entirely depend. In yonder soa left I the youth whom I loved, but lately he skipped and bounded from rock to rock. Dexterous was he in making every instrument the farm required, diligent in bringing home my tender flock. You went, O my love, upon young hanging cliff, but fear measured not thy steps thy foot only slipped, you fell never more to rife, thy blood stained yon flopping rock, thy brains lay scattered round, all thy wounds gushed at once, floating on the surface of the deep the cruel waves tore thee asunder, thy mother came, her grey hairs uncovered with the church, thy sister came, we mourned together, thy brother came, he lessened not a cry of sorrow, gloomy and sad we all beheld thee from afar, O thou that wast the sevenfold blessing of thy friends, The shiny lunce of their support! Now alas, my share of the birds is heard screaming in the clouds, My share of the eggs is already seized on by the stronger party. In yonder sun left I the youth whom I loved. A considerable part of the Gallic poetry, now extant, Was no doubt composed by the bards, Who were once entertained in the families of lords and chieftains. There was also a sort of rhapsodities who went about the country reciting their performances for a livelihood, and from time to time a number of private persons indulged their poetical vein without any view to profit. On this head we refer to a late publication wherein many curious anecdotes relative to Highland poetry are collected. Even such as are more sceptical with regard to Offian must admit that in the end of the 15th century, the Irish bards still made a considerable figure, and as their language and national features nearly resembled those of the Highlanders, so at a very early period their poetry was probably akin. Spenser, the poet has indeed drawn a frightful picture of the models of that order of men, yet he admits that some of their compositions, as translated to him, favoured of sweet wit and good invention but skilled not of the goodly ornaments of poetry, yet they were sprinkled with some pretty flowers of their natural device, which gave good grace and come-lines unto them. The which is a great pity to see so abused to the grace of wickedness and vice, which with good usage would serve to adorn and beautify virtue. The acrimony of that author's language, with regard to the Irish, shows him to have been actuated by prejudice and personal injuries. National antipathy in a great genius is a sad proof of the weakness of human nature, even in its brightest form. It seems, however, highly probable that both the Scottish and Irish Bards of the Middle Ages were the successors of the Druidical Ones, who upon the fall of that hierarchy were spared by general consent. But whatever was their origin, it is surely curious that a set of men who disappeared in Greece not long after the death of Homer should have been found last of all in the wilds of Scotland and Ireland. It is generally believed that this Prince of Poets was himself a bard or Aerthoc, similar to Democus or Femius. The charming pictures he draws of those favourite performers were, in all likelihood, taken from the manners either of his own age or of that immediately preceding it. But the resemblance between the people of the heroic times and the more primitive Highlanders is by no means confined to this feature. It might, if necessary, be traced through a variety of particulars. It is difficult, however, to account for the declension of the highland bards whilst ancient manners and customs were carefully cherished. Economy could hardly be the motive, as the portion of land and other perquisites allowed them were inconsiderable. We can only guess at the causes of this change. When the power of the crown began to preponderate, the nobles who had great estates in the highlands found it necessary sometimes to quit their castles where they had lived in rude but primitive magnificence. The friendship of their sovereign, being now the road to power, they endeavoured to secure it by frequently residing near his person. As the modes of their countrymen were in no estimation at court, they took care to form themselves according to a more polished standard. Converts to foreign manners are apt, they know not why, to despise those things which their fathers prized the most. What wonder then that some of those new-fangled courtiers should look cold upon their bards, though these had been the delight of their early years? Nor would it abate their prejudices that persons of the same profession were classed by one act of Parliament with foreigners, auverliers, and fainzid and stigmatised by another as idle and strung beggars. After the Reformation a tincture of letters was regarded as indispensable, both in the territorial lords and the more considerable chieftains, that they might take a decided part in matters of religion. Now book-learning has ever proved fatal to unlettered poets, by whatever name distinguished. But in spite of those novel notions, which operated slowly, the remote chiefs and the body of the gentry and people despised literature and low-country modes. They loved their traditional poetry the more that it was neglected by a few degenerate men of rank. Over all the highlands there are various songs which are sung to airs suited to the nature of the subject, but on the western coast, north, Middle Lorne, and in all the Hebrides, lunigs are most in request. These are in general very short and of a plaintive cast, analogous to their best poetry, and they are sung by the women not only at their diversions, but also during almost every kind of work where more than one person is employed, as milking cows and watching the folds, fulling of cloth. Grinding of grain with the kern or hand-mill hay-making and cutting down corn the men too have yorums or songs for rowing to which they keep time with their oars as the women likewise do in their operations wherever their work admits of it when the same airs are sung in their hours of relaxation the time is marked by the motions of a napkin which all the performers lay hold of in singing one person leads the band but in a certain part of the tune he stops to take breath while the rest strike in and complete the air, pronouncing into it a chorus of words and syllables, generally of no signification. These songs greatly animate every person present, and hence when labourers appear to slag, a lunig is called for, which makes them for a time forget their toil and work with redoubled ardour. In travelling through the remote highlands in harvest, the sound of those little bands on every side, warbling their native wood-notes wild, joined to a most romantic scenery has a very pleasing effect on the mind of a stranger. This is a practice both agreeable and useful. It alleviates labour and preserves regularity and uniformity of application. Indeed, the most polished nations might imitate it with advantage. One of the greatest improvements in the military art that has been made in modern times is the introduction of quick-step marches by which the soldiers are made to advance not only quicker, but with more regularity and greater cheerfulness, than they could be made to do by any other contrivance. Perhaps no songs can be more happily constructed as labouring songs than the highland lunics. Every person may join in them, and no one has occasion to sing along without having an interval or breathing time. The St. Kildians too are very fond of music. Being great lovers of dances, they have a number of reels, which are either sung or played on the Jew's harp or trump, their only musical instrument. One or two of these is found uncommonly wild, even to one that can relish a rough highland reel. Some of the notes appear to be borrowed from the cries of the sea-fowl, which visit them at certain seasons of the year and are considered as their benefactors. Their religic music is in a better strain, pathetic and melancholy, but exceedingly simple. Like the other peculiarities of the Highlanders, the custom of singing these songs regularly at work is declining apace, especially in the eastern countries and the districts which have much intercourse with the lowlanders. Yet less than a century ago, it was practised by their forefathers. However wild and ardly some of the lunics may be, and however ill others of them are sung by the common people, yet a number of beautiful original ones may still be collected in the highlands. The greater part of them appear to be adapted to the harp, an instrument which was once in high affirmation there. In the first ages of society, the poet and musicians, were commonly one and the same. Thus, both in Homer and Ophion, the bards accompanied their poetical effusions with the harp. But no sooner did arts and letters make considerable progress in any country, than poetry and music became two separate professions, exercised by men of very different characters. If, however, we may believe tradition, those talents were, of old, frequently united in the highland bards. The last person who possessed them, in an eminent degree, was Roderick Morrison, or Dow, who in the end of the last century acted both as bard and harper to the laird of Macleod. He was born a gentleman and living on that footing in the family. Like Demodocus he was blind, and like him he graced his poetry with the music of the harp. It is believed he was the last performer of that instrument in the Hebrides, Although the harp be now confined to Ireland, we have better evidence than tradition of the existence and even excellence of that species of music among the Highlanders of the 12th and 15th centuries. Geraldus Cambrensis, who visited Ireland about the year 1185, speaks with rapture of the instrumental music of that country, which he scruples not to prefer to that of all the nations around. He also informs us that both the Scots and the Welsh had their music from the same quarter, and such proficients were the former that many were of opinion they excelled their ministers. It is plain he means the Gallic Scots from his making them of the same stock with the Irish. In this passage we have some openings into the state and nature of the music of the Irish in the end of the twelfth century. The author speaks like one who was either an adept in that art or at least well acquainted with his technical language. It would appear that the Irish had then discovered the powers of the harp and were able in a considerable degree to bring them out, and a few instruments are susceptible of more brilliant execution or capable of greater effects than the one in question. His information with regard to the musical attainments of the Scots was probably derived from the Irish themselves, for there is no evidence of his having ever visited Scotland. That in the 15th century the Highlands had not lost their character for skill in playing on the harp appears from a passage in John Major's Panegyric on King James I, in which they are classed with the Irish. He calls that prince another Orpheus, who touched the harp more exquisitely than either the Highlanders or the Irish that were the most eminent harpers then known. There is indeed a strong likeness between the Irish songs and the Highland lunics. If the latter are shorter and more incomplete, it seems owing to their being preserved by oral tradition among a people who of late had no regular musicians. Whereas the great Irish families continued to the last passionately fond of their national peculiarities and entertained in their houses harpers that were the depositaries of their best pieces of music, besides it is not unlikely that the Irish songs on their naturalisation may have been somewhat modernised. The testimony of Geraldus and Major is the more worthy of credit that the former abuses the Irish most deliberately in almost every page and the latter never misses a hit at the Highlanders. It required almost the musical talents of Orpheus to charm the malevolence of Giraldus. The facts they record are exceedingly curious, and add not a little to the intrinsic evidence that strikes the mind on perusing the poems of Orphean. Music can only keep pace with the sentiment which dictates it. A country, therefore, that is acknowledged by its enemies to possess excellent music Cannot be supposed destitute of poetical genius either in the present or preceding times. Indeed, the delicacy and beautiful simplicity that appear in the sentiments and diction of the Caledonian bard are entirely analogous to the sweet strain of the harp tunes. However strange it may sound to mere moderns, poetry and music have in all ages been the peculiar delights of rude and barbarous nations, nor were the compositions of their poets uniformly harsh and mean. If we may rely on the judgment of Homer, the talents of Orpheus, Museus, and Thamyris were exquisitely fine, especially in music. Yet these were the bars of the Thracians, a people as little civilized as the ancient Caledonians. It was in the most early ages that the Arcadians, an unmixed uncultivated people, the highlanders of Peloponnesus, became so famous for poetry and music. And at Aeonia, the mountainous part of Boeotia, Was considered as the favorite abode of the Muses, and the bards of the Celtae are celebrated by contemporary authors for their musical accomplishments. Nay, the Greeks themselves, who do not willingly surrender to other nations the merit of useful inventions, confess that to the barbarians they owe many things in music as well as some of its best instruments. It appears therefore highly probable that the harp music of the Highlanders and Irish owes its origin to the druidical bards. Though from a narrow, interested policy their masters rejected the use of letters, they were nevertheless advanced many steps beyond the savage state and had even made considerable progress in some branches of philosophy. Neither is it surprising that this music should have lurked for so many ages in the mountainous parts of Scotland and Ireland when we consider the attachment of every unmixed branch of the Celte to their original institutions. The Highlanders have perhaps undergone more changes in the course of the present century than for a thousand years preceding. But beyond all memory or tradition, the bagpipe has been the favourite instrument of that people. We shall enter into no disquisition concerning its original seed, only it is of very high antiquity. It is uncertain at what period it was introduced among the Highlanders, but it is neither mentioned nor alluded to in the poems of Offian. Whether this instrument with its chords of drones be the chorus of Giraldus is submitted to the musical antiquity. There is no doubt a tradition in the Hebrides that it was brought in by the northern nations whose viceroys governed those islands for two centuries at least. The highland chieftains, that rose upon their removal, appear indeed to have copied them in some other particulars. The large bagpipe is the instrument for war, for marriage or funeral processions, and for other great occasions. They have also a smaller kind on which dancing tunes are played. In their hours of betterment and relaxation, young people of both sexes dance with great alacrity to a species of wild, airy tunes, the nature of which is universally known. Every morning too, in peaceable times, the piper played under the chieftain's windows, strutting with stately steps backwards and forwards and at meal times he regaled him and his guests with favourite tunes these however were the least considerable parts of the piper's duty in former times his presence at funerals was deemed essential there he played certain melancholy tunes which in all probability were connected with the coronach or dirge performed in the days of paganism by the bards over the grave the addressing the dead man in broken extemporary verses has been given up in the highlands and isles for more than half a century. Yet instrumental music, suited to the occasion, was retained by the more primitive inhabitants till of late years. In the days of Offian, the dirge appears to have been accompanied by the harp, an instrument well suited to tender passionate emotions. But after it had lost its credit, the pipers would doubtless attempt to catch the spirits of the dirge as far as it could be accommodated to the bagpipe but a very peculiar species of martial music was in the highest request with the Highlanders. It was sometimes sung, accompanied with words, but more frequently performed on the bagpipe. And in spite of every change, a Pirbrach or Krünerhat, though it may sound harsh to the ear of a stranger, still rouses the native Highlander in the same way that the sound of the trumpet does the warhorse. Nay, it sometimes produced effects, little less marvellous than those recorded of ancient music. At the Battle of Quebec, in April 1760, whilst the British troops were retreating in great confusion, the general complained to a field officer of Fraser's regiment of the bad behaviour of his corps. Sir, answered he, with some warmth, you did very wrong in forbidding the pipes to play this morning. Nothing encourages Highlanders so much in a day of action. Nay, even now they would be of use. Let them blow like the devil then, replied the general, if it will bring back the men. And the pipers being ordered to play a favourite Krünnhed, the Highlanders who were broken returned the moment they heard the music and formed with great alacrity in the rear. The contrast between the pipe and the harp tunes is so striking that one could hardly imagine them to be the music of the same people. Indeed, none of the lunics is adapted to the bagpipe, nor will the classic writers quoted below enable us to point out the origin of the pipe warlike music. They, no doubt, tell us that both the Celtic and Teutonic nations in the day of battle relied greatly on a certain species of poetry and music which sounded wild and barbarous. By this they animated their own troops and endeavoured to terrify their enemies. In all probability, however, there were essential differences in the style and matter of these compositions. No two nations could less resemble each other in religion, manners and language, the circumstances which stamp the character and taste of a people. Yet in one particular they agree, viz, in these songs being mostly sung and not played on instruments, that however is little material to transition being easy and natural. We must therefore have recourse to conjecture and analogy. A great part of the poetry of the Northern Scowls, prior to the introduction of Christianity into their country, is still extant. It differs as widely from other poetry, ancient or modern, as the Pibrach, or Krüneyachd, does from the music of the nations around. The English reader will find sufficient specimens of its genius and spirit in Gray's Runic Odes and Dr. Blair's excellent dissertation on the Poems of Ophian. An ode of Ragnar Lodbrok, a king of Denmark in the 8th century, is thus characterised by the Doctor. This is such poetry as we might expect from a barbarous nation it breathes a most ferocious spirit. It is wild, harsh and irregular, but at the same time animated and strong. The style in the original full of inversions, and as we learn from some of Olaf's notes, highly metaphorical and figurative. That the scouts might both animate the soldiers in battle and record their heroic actions, they were sometimes placed near the royal standard, in the centre of the Fjaldborg, i.e. a chosen band of warriors that fought around the king and covered him with their shields. Or in the hearing of the whole army about to engage, they sang with a loud voice, the Riarkamal, a song exceedingly acceptable, it being calculated to inspire an ardent desire of victory and renown. Specimens of these compositions with literal translations may be found in the author quoted below. If there the martial music in question be of Scandinavian origin, It accorded excellently with the bold, impetuous, abrupt strain of the scouts. The sound and the sentiment were in perfect union and well suited to the feelings of a rugged people whose trade was war and whose fury was long considered as irresistible. The epithets given by Tacitus to the songs of another Teutonic people may with great propriety be applied to these species of pipe music. Neither is it surprising that the islanders of the Middle Ages should take an attachment to the music of their conquerors, it being excellently calculated to brace the nerves and rouse the soul, and it accorded better with the state of society than the harp, which aimed principally at awakening the finer feelings. A national convulsion, or indeed any great change in circumstances, will in process of time alter the taste of a people. It is impossible to say what modifications the music underwent, or what reception the bagpipe met with from the highland bards. At the best it was an unsociable instrument which excluded the voice and of course did not set off their poetry to advantage like the harp. Though harpers were retained for hundreds of years after the introduction of the bagpipe, yet the favour of the chief and his warriors was at length transferred to the pipers whose strains responded so well their ruling passion. And when at length the former disappeared, the lunics and other harp heirs were probably preserved by the women to whose native sensibility and tenderness the music was admirably suited. From the islands the bagpipe would spread gradually over the neighbouring continent. Our conjecture is not the less likely, that the Irish are said, to have no pibrochs or Krönigerts among them. In ascertaining the origin of those tunes, it would be material to know whether the northern nations have any authentic remains of their ancient martial music. Their manners and customs have, doubtless, undergone manifold changes since they abandoned the Hebrides. The revival of letters must have given them, as well as almost every other European people, a new cast of character. And hence their present music may have the same affinity to polished models that their modern poetry has to the classics. Both may be somewhat unrefined and imperfect, yet widely different from what prevailed in the 11th and 12th centuries. The preservation of the oldest runic poetry was owing to their forefathers having the art of writing at a period when other barbarous nations relied on oral tradition, but a music coeval and connected with those singular compositions, not being noted down, was likely to be exploded as soon as novel modes and notions gained ground. And it is no ways wonderful that it should be found, last of all, among the highlanders, whose manners have been stationary ever since the northern nations quitted their coasts. Till of very late years they held novelty of every kind in abomination. It is abundantly characteristic of them that, whilst other trades might be taken up at pleasure, the piper alone was obliged to serve a regular apprenticeship. But the reason is obvious. His countrymen were satisfied with bungling artificers, but required a degree of excellence in their musicians. The veneration paid to the head of a tribe of eminent pipers by his scholars will appear from an anecdote which Lord John Drummond told a gentleman of this neighbourhood soon after it happened. In the last rebellion, a body of loyal Highlanders was defeated at Inverurie, and the laird of MacLeod's paper, the representative of the celebrated MacRimmon, taken prisoner after a stout resistance. Next morning, the rebel pipers did not play through the town as usual, on which Lord John, who commanded, sent for them and asked the reason of it. They answered that, Whilst MacRimmon was in captivity, their pipes were dumb, and nothing but the release of their master could make them return to their duty. Though the pipers have survived their brethren, the harpers almost a century, they themselves will, ere long, share the same fate. The present ones are already inferior to their predecessors in knowledge and execution, nor are they to expect encouragement from their chieftains and gentry, whose manners are formed on a new model, and the spirit of the commons is broken and directed to objects very different from those of former times. In less than twenty years it would be in vain to attempt a collection of Highland music. Perhaps it is rather late at present, but enough may be got to point out its genius and spirit. The remains of the harp tunes are in most immediate hazard as all ranks of people are changing their modes of life with wonderful rapidity. The pipe music is, no doubt, most entire, yet from its being seldom noted down, a considerable part of it has already perished, and ere long the remainder will either be lost or performed in a slovenly manner. In former times the want of notation was supplied in some measure by the earnest desire every piper had of playing in taste the tunes that were most acceptable to his patron. To have allowed such venerable monuments of antiquity to vanish away would have been a reflection of the state and liberality of the present age nor ought the favour of the public to be considered to the collection now about to be published. Different men will pursue different paths. The more of these, then the better, provided the music is given genuine and unadulterated. It would be no difficult matter to make the airs more beautiful and more agreeable to an improved ear, but if this were done there would be gross deceit in giving them as originals. Let them, therefore, appear in their native simplicity and nakedness and its improvements and variations shall be found necessary, these can be added afterwards. Though the intrinsic merit of such a publication may not appear considerable to the regular musician, it is nevertheless valuable as a specimen of what was once the delight of a great people. Its very simplicity is a pledge of originality and antiquity. We need not, surely, remind the learned reader that artless melodies conjoined with favourite words have produced effects on the hearts of men in a half-improved state which the greatest composer in modern times would attempt in vain with all his art. To the philosophic antiquary who contemplates with admiration every genuine fragment of the manners of ancient nations, those ancient airs will prove highly interesting. Peculiar manners and peculiar music, though a subject of ridicule to the fastidious and illiberal, will be regarded by him as features by which the Almighty hath distinguished nations the great families of the earth, from each other. The music of Orpheus and other Thracian bards, and the airs sung by the Arcadian and Sicilian swains, were in all probability inferior to the compositions of Handel and Corelli. Yet every genuine connoisseur would graft at such precious remains of antiquity, could they be obtained pure and unspoiled by art. To conclude, we may safely affirm that poetry and music had a mighty influence on the minds of the Highlanders. Their poetical tales were, if we may be allowed the expression, pastorals for warriors, and well calculated to inspire the men with an ardent desire of imitating, on some future occasion, their ancient worthies. The women too, by whom a great part of these were sung, regarded the martial virtues as essential in a son or a lover, and in every age and country, the wishes and sentiments of that sex have a surprising dominion over the men. When, therefore, these circumstances are considered can we be at a loss to account for that heroic bravery which distinguishes Highlanders and their first entry upon action. Those precepts and examples which are set before them in the engaging dress of poetry, aided by congenial music, teach them that generous contempt of danger and event of death, to which the common people of commercial countries seldom attain, till they have been thoroughly disciplined and familiarised
0: to war. Alright, thanks again Anthony Smith for being our reader You've been listening to the Patrick McDonald collection of Highland Vocal Airs Country Dances and Reels If you'd like to support the podcast you can always go to patreon.com slash If you're interested in participating in like a book club discussion of this book just shoot me an email at waytotwag at gmail.com or join the Patreon where I'll be talking about it there Uh, and look forward to the next episode coming out hopefully pretty soon Uh, of that discussion of keith sanger barry shears matt seattle pete stewart and i talking about sort of whatever trips our fancy after thinking about the patrick mcdonald collection so anyway cheers i'm gonna end this without any music because we're already uh, long over time so thanks everyone see you soon